Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers, and welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 84. I am still coming to you from Jakarta, Indonesia. I'll be flying to Malang on Thursday to hike Mount Bromo. So hopefully the next time that I check in with you, I'll have some cool stories about that. But for today, my guest is Diavio Alfath. He is the executive director of the Sandia Institute. Straight from their website, their mission is optimizing and harmonizing the efforts of peacebuilding, counter-violent extremism, and human rights advocacy through our programs in research, education, advocacy, and campaigning. The Sandia Institute aims to empower and provide rights and education and assistance and mentoring to minority groups and to refugees. And... At a young age, Diavio has not only become the executive director of the Sandia Institute, but he also is a liaison to the United Nations Alliance of Civilization. And he most recently was awarded with a very prestigious award in the United States. So in this episode, we get into that award, we get into the work that he does, his outlook, and... um, you know, what he thinks are fundamentally the rights that all people deserve, whether they're here in Indonesia or whether they are people who are abroad. He's really brilliant, and I think that he has a a really bright future in Indonesia and in international politics and humanitarianism. If you are somebody who wants to support the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, you can do so on Patreon. Patreon is a monthly subscription service where you can give... $0.50, $1, $5, $5,000 a month, and that will go to keeping these stories coming and to keeping this content coming. If you are unable to uh, financially support the podcast, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes or the podcast application of your choice. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. There will be a link for that in the show notes for this episode as well as a link for the Sandia Institute and uh, information about how you can find out about them and find out about Dio. And there will also be a link to supporting financially for the Sandia Institute. They uh, can use your donation because they do things like uh, provide education through the Sunrise Refugee Learning Center. I saw just the other day that they were running a workshop on public speaking for refugees. Uh, They put on the International Conference for the Protection of Minority Rights. They do all sorts of stuff for minorities and for refugees in Indonesia, and they are much more deserving of your hard-earned money than I am for this podcast. So if you have just enough to donate to one thing, donate to them before you donate to the podcast. All right, this one's with Dio. I hope you like it. Check, check, check. Okay. What you're going to want to do is as much as possible, sometimes when 
I'm talking with people, they forget that we're talking, and so mm -hmm. they start talking with their hands or stuff, but then obviously the mic's not picking up your voice so well. Okay. Uh, as best as possible, like an even distance from your face, because here, here, here means I have to adjust more later. It's okay if it happens. Okay. Uh, it always does. Um, cool, man. Are you, are you ready to go? Y yes. All right, cool. Dio, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. I know that uh, you're a pretty busy guy, so I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me as well. This will be a oppor good opportunity for me to uh, spread uh, the news about Sand Institute and my work as well. Yeah, and I think it's really important, Dio. Uh, we'll get into it, but obviously the refugee situation in the United States is a really big topic right now. Uh, so maybe this will help to, to shed some light on some of the issues for people back in the States too. Yeah. It's cool, man, because in Jakarta, we were just talking about this before we were rolling. I, I get to meet so many interesting people who are doing really cool things and a lot of them are doing work that uh, helps people here in Indonesia and uh, abroad as well. So uh, you're one of those people. So I'm really glad that, uh, that I have you on here. Thank you very much again for inviting me. Yeah. But uh, I'm just ordinary people who have the patience to help others in it, especially refugee communities. Well, I mean, they're lucky to have you. And, and, and so maybe that's where we'll start. Um, maybe what we can start with for listeners is uh, the Sandia Institute. Yeah. Uh, what's sort of the, the work, what's the work that's being done and what's the purpose and the mission of the Institute? Okay, Sandia Institute is a non-government organization that focuses. Uh, Sandia Institute is an. Is, oh. It's okay. <laughs> Sandia Institute is a non-government organization that focuses on the protection of minority groups. We work together with minority of religion, race, ethnicity, um, gender, and sexuality, and and refugees. Ah, uh, okay. Our vision is to achieve a more human society that live harmoniously in peace. Mm. And our missions are to educate maturity and empower minorities. Wow. Yep. So you're quite young, if, if, if that's okay to say. Okay. Uh, how did this become an issue that you decided to take on? Well, I was invited by United Nations Secretary General in 2014, uh, wow. Ban Ki-moon, uh, to discuss about our humanity's most most challenging issues mm. and it got into me when I uh, talk with many young people across the globe who have done amazing works and uh, it occurred to me what have I done to to my community to the world and when I got back from that conference I saw many uh, minorities in Indonesia they are uh, that they have been persecuted for being who they are. And I thought that I could make a difference. Uh, started by establishing Sandy Institute in 2014 uh, with my friends in, in the law school that we went. And we started small. We created a platform for young people to discuss about these issues. Uh -huh. And then later on, it grew up to the extent that we never expected it would be as big as it is now. Yeah, I'll, I'll preface the conversation for listeners. I do this often, so people might be kind of tired of hearing it um, and, and say that uh, I'm sure you love Indonesia. <laughs> I, I, I really love course, Indonesia as yeah. well. Uh, you know, if, if more from the 
from a boule sense, from a traveler sense, because I'm not from here. Um, but I think that you can love something and still be critical of the things that need to be improved. And I think it's actually your duty, if you love something, yeah, to, to ensure that the things that need to be fixed get fixed. You mentioned that, and, and I've seen this on the website as well, that uh, minority groups in recent years and historically haven't fared so well in Indonesia. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because there is a strong culture that is rooted in uh, conservative values? Well, that is actually true. Before the Islamic extremism became more powerful in Indonesia, we uh, were recognized as a very tolerant nation. Mm. We welcome people with diverse background. If you talk about religions, we have had many religions in Indonesia who live uh, harmoniously among us. And uh, we also respect people with uh, different races. We treat people well with uh, Chinese communities. We work together well with um, other communities who are not considered as indigenous. Mm. But then again, uh, when Islamic extremism uh, were gaining ground in the past, uh, 10 years, uh, I saw that the tolerance in Indonesia is being reduced by these communities because of their exclusivity. Mm. They tend to see those who are different than them as less than them or even uh, considered as infidels. And this is the main cause uh, the, of the intolerance that is occurring right now in Indonesia. If we see these extremist groups, they tend to promote the idea that those who are different than them should be discriminated against, should be persecuted or even killed. Mm. It's interesting, man, because um, I think that while that is an issue that's happening here in Indonesia, it's something that's happening globally. Uh, people sort of label themselves differently. I, I think that people who have extreme conservative values in the United States won't call themselves fundamentalists um, or even radicals. But it's a similar situation in where people are sort of pairing off into groups. I've seen this in my travels in a lot of places where um, people are identifying with their closest identity group, be it nationality, uh, sexual orientation, gender, and it's sort of an us against them type of thing that's happening everywhere. Uh, have you, have the communities that you've been assisting here in Indonesia, is there any sort of um, like a global connection or global networks that people are able to become a part of? Yeah, I think about the Islamic extremism, it has um, strong ties with the Wahhabi movement mm. in Middle East. Mm. If we've seen the practices that they have been doing in Indonesia, we can see the similarities of the teachings and the practices that is also applied in Middle East. And these groups, they identified themselves as the true Islam. Meanwhile, what we've seen in Indonesia is there have been... Uh, mix of the culture and religion and that is why we we often see the term of Islam Nusantara which is basically the 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 term for uh, the 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 what the 
the assimilation ah. of the Islamic values that was brought from Middle East to Indonesia with Indonesian uh, indigenous identities. And what we've seen from this movement is that this movement have been contributing in promoting inclusive Islam and promoting the balance between democracy and Islam. So you have sort of competing ideologies, right? I recently had uh, Ruby Khalifa. Do you know who she is? I know her very well. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> she was on the last episode of the podcast. Okay. Um, and she too is doing this amazing work uh, of inclusivity, of um, more progressive values that don't persecute, <laughs> that are nonviolent. Um like how how do you see this playing out, and how do you get your message across? There's a big election coming up next year. Um, it seems like, without getting too political, one candidate may favor one of these ideologies more than the other. Like, how, what are you doing to to promote the values that you guys hold dear within your organization? Uh, we promote our values through training, seminars, workshop, conferences that mm. we. Uh, we're doing regularly. We have uh, our School of Peace and Human Rights to reach out to uh, Indonesian young people to be more tolerant and to understand the concept of human rights. So when they are faced with a diverse environment, they would respect those who are different than them. And we also have the conferences that we uh, hold uh, annually that uh, that conferences uh, are aimed to <clears throat> promote the human rights values across the in, across Indonesia and the globe as well. Mm. I want to ask you a couple questions about refugees. This might seem like a very simple question, but uh, I think there's a purpose to it, and, and you'll see. What is a refugee? If we refer to the refugee convention. Uh, refugee is a person who owes to fear of being persecuted because of their identities, political affiliation, and their membership of social groups. And then the case sorry. where the country is not able or is not willing to provide uh, safety to towards their own communities. And these persons, they seek international protection. And that is an official status that I guess is recognized by the United Nations? Yes, it is in accordance to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Okay. And as I understand it, Indonesia was not a part of that signing at the convention, correct? Yes, that is true. Okay. And so that means that Indonesia is instead of a nation that can accept and permanently house refugees, instead it is a transition nation. Yes, it's a, country, it's a transit country. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? It means that Indonesian government, they welcome refugees to, uh, to be in Indonesia, but the Indonesian government does not want them to reside here permanently. Okay, so that is the reality of the situation here. The reality abroad right now is that places like the European Union and the United States, which were places that traditionally, uh, well, depending on what what uh, 
sort of era and time frame you're looking at, but traditionally had accepted uh, more refugees and more immigrants. But now both places are starting to have some constrictions and restrict the amount of people who come into those countries. Does that then mean now that more people are staying for a longer amount of time in Indonesia? Yes, that is true. Those refugees will stay for a longer time in Indonesia because the countries that uh, that are usually accepting them. Uh, in this case, most of refugees who are coming to Indonesia, they want to be resettled in New Zealand or Australia mm. because most of them, they are coming from Afghanistan, uh, oh. Iraq, and Somalia. And then the others, they are f- coming from... Um, the other countries in Middle East and Africa, and as well as, well as uh, Myanmar. Most of them, they want to go to Australia and New Zealand, and that is why they are, uh, they are here, uh, because the main destination uh, for them is Australia or New Zealand. That is why Indonesia is in their route to go there. Uh, but then again, these countries uh, have been reducing the intake of refugees to their countries. And there has been a regulation from the Australian government that they uh, do not want to accept refugees who are in Indonesia after 2014. Really? Yeah. And I discussed this matter a lot with the UNSCR Indonesia. And even the director said that most of the refugees, they'll be, they will never be resettled. Meaning that we have to find durable solution for these refugee communities so that they are able to live in Indonesia with decent housing, decent education, decent uh, rights to livelihood so that they are able to live in Indonesia with dignity and respect from Indonesian government. Well, that's incredible work, first of all. Um, and I know that that's, uh, it's quite tricky. Um, I think that some people have the idea in their head that like, oh, well, these are people who are going to come into our country and I'm a tax-paying citizen and I don't want my tax money going to helping these particular people who are coming into my country, right? Like they haven't, they haven't put in the time I have. They haven't paid their dues. Uh, when the reality of the situation is that regardless of what your views on the topic are, if you need to protect your family and to do something that's going to ensure the safety of your family, you're going to do what you have to do. And that may include transitioning and immigrating into a new country. It, to me, maybe the, the, the real long-term solution, and maybe you can, you can speak to this, would be to uplift the country of origin and to help to fix the political or the social or the economic situation that's happening there so that fewer people... Uh, have the necessity to to immigrate. Would you agree with that? <laughs> well, I think if we've seen the refugees directly, if we've talked with them directly, they don't want to go back to their countries if their countries are still like that. And if their countries are fixed, if the problems in their countries are fixed, it's their uh, desire uh, to go back to their countries because no one wants to leave right. their home, right? right? But then again, it that matter that you've said is out of our control. We cannot just right. interfere to other countries' political matters. We cannot, you know, fix in an instant way the 
the complicated conflict, I think we should just focus on what we can do. We cannot just fix a country's complex problem in an instant way. We cannot just interfere to other countries' home affairs. What we can do is uh, mitigate the problems that we have in front of our face. Mm. And what is happening in front of our face is that these refugees, they left their countries because of wars, conflict, persecution, and so on and so forth. And they need our help in here, in this context, Indonesia. What we can do is to treat them with respect, to treat them with dignity as a human being. That's what we can do. So your institute then, what are the types of services that you provide to refugees? Um, we provide services like the empowerment for refugees and advocating their rights directly to Indonesian government and international organization. For the, empower for the empowerment of refugees, we establish a learning center. It is called Sunrise Refugee Learning Center. Mm. We provide them with uh, English, uh, Bahasa Indonesia, and soft skills classes so that they are able to integrate with Indonesian communities with those languages because most of Indonesian, they are able to speak English right. and uh, some others might not be able to speak English. They speak Bahasa Indonesia and that is why we want the refugee communities, uh, if they are not able to, uh, if we want the refugee communities to be able to speak Indonesian and English fluently, so it would be easier for them to integrate within Indonesian communities. And we also advocate for their rights through our campaigns because the refugee issue is not a mainstream issue in Indonesia. Most of Indonesian, they don't even know that refugees exist in Indonesia. Mm. And we uh, conduct ca campaign on the rights of the refugees, on their existence in here, and on why they left their home countries and uh, why they are here. And we also promote their basic rights to the Indonesian government, to Indonesian public in general. So these stakeholders are able to grasp the understanding that refugees are also human. They are also uh, the same with us and they need our help to be able to live here conveniently. Yeah, one of the things that we were just talking about, uh, David, a little bit earlier, one of the things that I talked about with him is that a lot of times um, migrant laborers will be at the whim of abusive labor practices and things like that because they don't have the legal protections of the state. Um, what types of work or are there typical uh, occupations that refugees are going towards right now in Indonesia and are workers officially recognized by the state so that they get, um, you know, labor rights and labor protections? Um, if we refer to uh, the policies that have been made by immigration office, um, uh, in accordance to our discussions with the immigration office, technically they are not allowed to uh, work in Indonesia. Okay. Uh, meaning that they are also not subject to protection of the labor law that applies in Indonesia. But however, we're still advocating their rights 
to employment. Mm. Uh, we advocate for their rights to livelihood so that they are able to be independent and not dependent to uh, state actors and non-state actors. I see. And I'm assuming um, the reality of the situation is as it is anywhere, there are refugees who are doing what they have to do and, and probably some people who haven't been able to link up with an organization such as yours are working because they need to to survive. Um, I personally haven't seen any refugees working in Indonesia oh, really? because most of them, they are, uh, they have that understanding that they are refugees and the Indonesian government does not allow them okay. to work officially in Indonesia. And that is why they don't work here. Okay. But it's our hope that one day Indonesian government will allow them to legally work in here so that they are able to live independently in order to live with dignity and mm. respect. There's a particular issue that I'm, I'm really interested in. If, if you're not an expert on it, we don't have to talk about it. But um, I've noticed that a lot of people in Indonesia really identify with what's happening in Myanmar right now with the Rohingya. And I, I also saw on your website, uh, I think maybe back in March, you guys had, uh, had a post about the situation. Uh, it's very confusing for me because, you know, I have a, a real small knowledge and education on the issue, but I had read um, Suki's uh, letters. She has a book of her letters from when she was under house arrest. And to me, it sounded a lot like uh, like Martin Luther King or Thoreau or, you know, uh, identifying human rights and civil rights and uh, identifying that all people should have those. <laughs> and then you see the reality of the situation that's happening right now, regardless of the cause, it looks a lot like ethnic cleansing. Uh, do you understand the situation as it's happening? Um, do you like? Are you able to, to to grapple with this and to explain it? Yeah, I think uh, ethnic cleansing has been going on in uh, Rakhine State, Myanmar, because we've seen it clearly that the military personnel they targeted civilians because of their identities, because of they are Rohingya, and then they believe that Rohingya are not part of their countries. Well, in fact, they've been able to live uh, peacefully before they enacted the law that exclude these communities from their countries. From what I've discussed with experts on this matter and what I've uh, analyzed directly uh, from the data and the news that I read and the research that, that I analyzed as well, um, I think that um, the Rohingya community, they are being target of the ethnic cleansing of Burmese military uh, under the uh, Myanmar's government. Yeah, it seems like really uh, perhaps Suki doesn't quite actually have the power over the country and that really it's the military that is ruling right now. I mean, if... Even if she doesn't have the power to change the status quo, she still has the power to 
convey the message to the international communities, to her own communities that it is wrong and it should stop. But what I've seen is that she tends to uh, allow this to happen under her control. And I would agree with those who propose that uh, her Nobel Prize should be stripped off. Wow, yeah. And, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of people be sort of critical of ASEAN as well on this issue. Uh, I had someone from the ASEAN Foundation on here, and I didn't think it was fair for me. I had this the question in my mind, but I didn't think it was fair for me to ask her because she's not a policymaker. Um, you know, I would have had to go a bit higher up the chain maybe to, to, to see somebody who could have enacted some of this change. Uh, but I would think ASEAN as well maybe needs to put a bit more pressure on Myanmar. Yeah, but then again, I, I think the the representative from ASEAN has explained it to you that they have this non-interference principle, meaning that even if they want to change the status quo in Myanmar, they're not able to because they mm. are bounded by the principle of non-interference. So what do you think this, the solution would be? Would the UN need to put pressure? Would uh, international countries need to put economic sanctions? What do you think? Well, I, I'm not an expert of international relations, oh. but from what I've analyzed is that uh, the Myanmarese government, they, they, they don't care of what the international community thinks and they are keep persecuting the Rohingya communities in, even until today. And from the uh, findings that I've read, and the data that has been shown by Amnesty International and other uh, international non-government organizations that have been working on this matter, it's very clear that the Burmese military, they have been uh, committing uh, ethnic cleansing. And if we can pursue this matter to international criminal court and mm. hold them accountable, that would be an ideal that we can uh, work together on. I know I'm asking a lot of uh, pretty loaded and tough questions, yeah. Dio, so I, th <laughs> I thank you for like for gracefully tackling uh, the, these answers to the questions. Um, you know, there's, like I said, uh, Ruby and her work, you're doing your work. Like, every, like I said at the outset, everywhere I look, I see people here in Jakarta doing amazing work to, to help people. Um, and we mentioned at the outset that that exists alongside conservative values and a little bit of a rise in or maybe a change in the way that radicalism looks to where it's no longer just, uh, you know, single lone wolf males, but now you see um, women and families getting involved in certain areas. So you have th these two things that are existing at the same time. Um, you have the Internet changing things because people have access to information. They have access to to social media networks to where maybe now refugees can connect across social media. Um, you have, a, 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 like I said, a big election coming up next year. We just saw a major election in, in Brazil, which uh, looks to be like a place that's going to be quite scary for minority groups. Uh, you, know, you know the political situation in the United States. But here in Indonesia, with all of these different things happening at once, uh, what do you see for the future for minority rights, for refugee rights? Do you think uh, in five years that your movement spreads? Uh, what do you predict? I'm 
in, uh, despite of what is currently happening, I still see that there are a large number of people who care about diversity, inclusion, and unity of our nation. And if we reflect to the United States and even Brazil, even if the current government, they are not very tolerant, but then again, if we take a look at the grassroots, if we look at the communities, they work together to tackle this problem. Mm. And that is what is actually happening in Indonesia. Even if there is a large number of um, groups that wants Indonesia to be more exclusive and discriminating against the minorities. But then again, we also have huge movements that want to protect the rights of minorities and to keep our nation's unity. Um, one of them is Sunday Institute. We currently have around uh, 500 volunteers across oh, wow. the globe. And most of them, they are residing in Indonesia. Um, we have many volunteers in Jakarta, Yogyakarta, Medan, and other parts of Indonesia. And it's still growing because we keep recruiting people uh, in three months. Mm. And I see a high enthusiasm of young people, especially in tackling these problems. I'm very optimistic, even though we're faced with adversities, we're still able to uh, tackle those problems together. Because in Sunday Institute, we uh, concern of our nation's future if we do not uh, mitigate the problem from now, because we have seen the fact that there are around 13,800 refugees in Indonesia mm. with no rights of employment, with limited rights of education, with limited rights of movement, or even they have limited rights to healthcare and uh, another important things for their life. But we've seen the communities working together to assist refugees. Sandy Institute is not alone. There are a lot of uh, civil society organizations that help them, like uh, Jesuit Refugees, ASSLASI, yeah. and uh, CWS, CRS, and even the refugee community themselves, they are very resilient. They establish their own learning centers, their advocacy platform. Uh, I think that with the adversity that we're facing right now, we also find resilience within the community. And that's what makes us stronger as a community. That's beautiful. Um, what, what, uh, what is saddening right now is to the other minority groups. Uh, if we've seen the minority of gender and sexuality, they've been persecuted consistently uh, by the extremist group in Indonesia. And I do hope that this will stop someday. But then again, with the government silence on this matter, we will not be able to tackle this problem. We need to convey the message to the public that even if they are different, even if they hold different value from us, we have to refer to our norm, our fundamental norm of Pancasila, because in Pancasila, it is stated that we should respect people uh, with humanity values. And if we respect people with humanity values, no matter of their gender, sexual orientation, religion, ethnicity, race, citizen, citizenship status, we will be able to live together peacefully because we see other people who are different from us as human being mm. who deserve to be treated like our friends, our brothers, our sisters, or, or even our parents. 
And that is why I believe that with current dynamics, I think that the government should take a lead in promoting inclusivity, even if I've seen the fact that the government tends to be to be permissive towards the extremist groups persecuting minorities. I think that we need to step up our game in here. We as a civil society organization, we should push our government to listen to us that we want diversity in Indonesia. We want our nations to be stronger together. Do you think that the government silence and maybe the government complicity is because that they think that's where the votes are? That's that's partially true, but the government also uh, needs to answer to the minority groups mm-hmm. because they are mandated to protect their rights. Yeah, and it's it's in our constitution, it's in our fundamental norm of Pancasila, it's in our laws that the government should be the one who protects them, not allowing others to attack them. So. You speak very well. You're quite knowledgeable. Uh, like I mentioned, you're young. You know, Thank you, very much. you know these things very well. Um, I think that there are a lot of people that would agree with your outlook on things. I hope so. Would you ever consider running for government? At this moment, I don't have any political aspiration, and my aspiration would be to serve the minority groups who are suffering for persecution in Indonesia. If I go to, if I pursue political career, I wouldn't be able to focus my energy, time and resources that I have to fully serve for these minority groups in Indonesia, seeing the fact that they have been persecuted. And with the current dynamics, I believe that the persecution will continue. And I think that would best that will be best for me to serve the minority groups in Indonesia through non-government organization or international organization that can actually contribute directly towards these minorities. Well, that's a really honest and sober way of looking at it. Uh, Very balanced. I think that's something that we don't quite see from politicians. So maybe that means, yeah, you aren't a politician. (laughs) I'm not a politician. Uh, I, I consider it to be one, but I've gone through some reflection and I think that I would not be a perfect fit for uh, that particular position. Mm. Well, something that I think is quite exciting, and I had to write down the name so that I I have this correct, but um, you were honored with the very prestigious Global Emerging Young Leaders Award uh, by the United Nations, I believe, and you got to go to the States. What was that all about? Uh, It's actually from the United States uh, Department of State from uh, not from the United Nations. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, an award. It's a prestigious award given to ten young leaders across the globe who have done uh, contributions to towards their own communities, and I received that award uh, through the United States Embassy in Jakarta. Uh, they nominated me to be one of the awardee, and I was called by them to uh, to talk about the works that, that I've been doing and uh, I wasn't expecting <clears throat> I wasn't expecting to win that award because I believe that there are many young people out there who are uh, doing uh, amazing jobs and I didn't think that I would deserve, deserve that award at that time but 
uh, in fact, I won the award and I I was invited to Washington DC to receive the award directly from uh, State Department. And I'm very grateful for the award that has been given to me. It has uh, a huge impact on uh, our organization. Uh, we got recognized by international institutions, wow. our own government, and uh, we are now more uh, recognized by our uh, communities uh, in Indonesia in general because of that award. And it affects our work because we, we have more credibility in our works and people would respect us with yeah, yeah. the award that has been given to us. And I'm very grateful for the award that has been given by the United States. That's amazing. Congrats, yeah. man. Thank you very much. Uh, so, so with that, do you, I mean, have you, uh, have you had any access to political figures or, or are there any, any people that right now you're able to identify as a potential ally that you've had access to at least talk to? Uh, yeah, uh, I've been very close with many politicians in Indonesia, many political party. Because besides working for Sunday Institute, I'm also working for a a non-government organization from Germany. Uh, oh, it's wow. called Frederick Naumann Foundation. But I just resigned last last month. But through that organization, I gained a lot of networks uh, with Indonesian top officials, and I think that they are very welcoming in uh, regards to the rights of uh, minority in promoting tolerance in Indonesia because it is in line with our ideology to respect diversity. How is your organization funded? Uh, Sana Institute is funded through our fundraising efforts. We conduct events that uh, require people to uh, pay for that and then the money that we receive from our events we use it for our programs and we also work with uh, another international organization as well as international non-government organization to implement our projects so we also receive fundings from them for example right now we're conducting a research called know your rights book uh, it's a four uh, four um, four it's a four volume books for the protection of minorities. We write books on the protection of minority of religions, minority of ethnicity and race, minority of gender and sexuality. The last one is the, the minority of refugees and asylum seekers as well as childless persons. And for the books that we write about the minority of refugees, asylum seekers and stateless persons, we collaborate with UNSCR and Jesuit refugees and they fund for that uh, books. And that is why we are able to, uh, uh, to conduct our research and uh, publish that books. Other ways that listeners can donate if they are financially uh, able and inclined to do so? Yeah, uh, that would be great and we would be very... Uh, happy if the people who have the capacity to donate to donate directly uh, to Sanjay Institute because we're in need of the donation. Cool. Uh, as an organization, we uh, we work with people who are uh, here on voluntary basis, meaning that they won't receive anything, including me. 
I never received anything from Sunday Institute, and all of the donation that we received, we distributed directly to the minorities in Indonesia through our programs. Amazing. So um, maybe off recording, you could give me a link, and I'll put that in the notes for for listeners to check out. And okay. Great. That would be great. Um, I, I, you know, I saw the other day that. Um, you guys had like a public speaking workshop. Yeah, um, you're doing a lot of great work, man. Um, if, if 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 people want to find out more information, or even if there's you know somebody in a minority group here in Indonesia that's feeling like they need some assistance or they need someone to advocate for them, uh, how can people find out about um, Sandia and some of the programs that you're that you're doing? Yeah, uh, you can find it. Uh, in our website, it's www.sandiainstitute.org, and in our Instagram because we're very active in Instagram, it's at Sandia Institute S N D Y A I N S T I T U T E. Um, if you would like to get connected to us, just go to the contact persons, and we will respond you directly. Awesome. Uh, is there anything that you want to, any sort of message that you want to leave listeners with before we, we sign off, or is that putting you on the spot? <laughs> well, I do hope that people would treat other people with uh, dignity and respect because uh, we're all human beings. We're born free and equal and dictated. We're all human beings. We're we're all born uh, free and equal in dignity and rights, and we should not treat others differently because of their identities. And we should uphold the value of humanity because it is what makes us stronger as communities, uh, not only in Indonesia, but also globally. If we've seen the fact that you have mentioned before in Brazil, we see that a far-right president is elected. And in the United States, we have Donald Trump who promotes the hate among the groups in the United States. Um, it is actually the right time for us to contribute directly to our communities, to speak up, to, uh, to not uh, let those who promote violence and extremisms win the narratives in society. We have to speak up uh, to counter those narratives because if we don't speak up, they will get the power that they, they've always wanted to. Hmm. I'll close with this. It'll be a long-winded thought. Um, I started this podcast two years ago, so it was October of 2016, the very end. So it was literally, I think, like the 30th that I posted it. So now, here we go, happy two years. Uh, and I started out, you know, I was still working. I was an assistant principal in a school, and I wanted a creative outlet. And so I started out just with stories. And there were stupid stories about my travels. Of uh, I, I did Muay Thai training and got my butt kicked in Thailand. I ate a beating snake heart in Hanoi. And it was like these <laughs> stupid adventures that I thought maybe people would be interested in. The first time I was, I believe it was the first time I was ever really humbled was I was able to have a survivor from the Rwandan genocide on the podcast. Um, and sitting across from her and, and hearing about the atrocities that she went through, but still having this amazing message of positivity, I felt like, okay, I'm doing this stupid little podcast, but now I've got this whole other thing where maybe I can reach people and, and make a bit of a change uh, 
put a little bit of light in, in a dark corner of the world somewhere. Or maybe somebody is listening that can identify with the words that are being said. I myself, while my life hasn't been all sunshine and roses, I've never been persecuted. I've never, I've never faced some of the issues that these refugees are facing or um, minority groups that are being persecuted against. So I'm happy that in the very least, the part I can play is to be a platform for other people's voices that maybe other people can identify with. Uh, and since that conversation with the genocide survivor, I've had you know, a Holocaust survivor. I've had people just here in Indonesia, the work Ruby's doing, the work David's doing in trafficking, the work that you're doing to at the very least put out a message that human lives are human lives and they should be respected um, and everyone's entitled to respect and the autonomy over their own happiness, success, and survival. Uh, so that's a very long-winded way in saying that I'm very happy that I have this platform. I'm very grateful that I get to meet people like you. Uh, and I'm appreciative that uh, you came on the podcast and we, we can use these microphones to, to put this message out into the world. So thank you, Dio. <laughs> thank you very much again for uh, inviting me. I think you've been doing great works. And I do hope that the message in here will be amplified to as many people as possible. And then we can promote peace and human rights to the world. Right. Cheers, brother. That is a wrap on episode number 84. Thank you to Dio and thank you to the Sandia Institute. Thank you to all of you Voyagers as always. Please check the show notes for this episode and you can find links to my Patreon and you can find links to find out more information about the Sandia Institute. And we will also have a link there for you to donate if you are able to do so. As always, thank you and take care of each other. <laughs>